Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm the middle school director uh, at this church, and I have the privilege of opening God's word with you this morning. Uh, we're continuing our series in Job, and just to kind of situate each and every one of us with what is going on relative to what's been covered in previous weeks. So far, Job has been engaged in this back and forth speech with his friends. And this back and forth speeches are kind of cycles, a total of three cycles, and we're going to be in the second cycle, but uh, these cycles of speeches uh, are framed in poetic dialogue. Dialogue between Job and his three friends, uh, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, as they seek to, to comfort, to, to counsel Job in light of the sufferings that he's experienced in life. And they seek to offer wisdom to inform Job of the realities of this world and its people when it comes to suffering. But he, here's the rub. Uh, they are miserable comforters. So when we look at Job's three friends so far, they are instructive for all of us today. Are they not? And how? Because they are a perfect case study of how not to counsel someone in their suffering. How one shouldn't speak into uh, someone's raw and recent experience of, of pain, suffering, or trauma. And that pretty much takes the bulk of this entire book. From chapter 4 to here to ch ch chapter 19 today, it, it's a continuation of this dialogue between Job and his friends. In particular, Job responds to all the counsel he's received so far, has considered the things spoken to him by all three friends, especially the most recent speech offered by Bildad, or as I like to call him, I have a special name for him because I've spent so much time this past week studying, reflecting on Bildad's words of comfort in chapter 18 this week. He's garnered a special place in my heart to the point where I came up with a nickname for him. I have decided to call him Bimbo Baggings, as a play on the name of Frodo's Hobbit bestie in J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. After all, the things that Bildad says leaves Job discouraged as if he's verbally insulting Job's cluelessness on why he's suffering, and Bildad's miserable comfort leaves us rolling our eyes. As if Job hadn't taken into account the theological truth that God punishes the wicked, yes, and that might be the reason for his suffering. But Bildad asserts, it is the reason for his suffering. You see, in chapter 18, Bildad, being the miserable comforter that he is, ironically speaks truth, okay? He actually speaks truth in chapter 18. Because in his theological system, that which he has down to a T, especially as it pertains to God demonstrating justice for all. In other words, he wants Job to know God's divine retribution, that, that God rewards the righteous but he punishes the wicked. So when bad stuff happens to people, it's because God is mad at them. But when people are righteous and blameless, it's all blessings upon blessings from God that will be showered upon your life. And that is the theological system that Job's friends adopt in their outlook on God and life. And it's the one they are trying to counsel and, and impose upon Job in the torrent of his agony having lost everything. But herein lies the problem in their counsel. It is like a closed system. 
It's a, like a sandbox environment where their conceptions about God can be asserted without challenge, without being tested. And Bildad has a theological system, a framework, a limited worldview for understanding God that doesn't take into account or have room for gray areas. He easily takes into account, you reap what you sow type of suffering, but he disregards innocent suffering. The kind that isn't provoked or, or caused because of any actions of our own. And they have no category for that. They can't fathom or conceive of, of a type of suffering with, with no clear or no direct correlation or can, that can be attributed to something that he has done, that, that we have done. In fact, that is proven by what Bildad says to Job in chapter 18, 4, the chapter before, when he says, You who tear yourself in your anger shall be shall the earth be forsaken for you? And shortly after in verse 5, indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. So basically, Bildad's system for understanding and, and processing suffering is, is rigid rather than robust. It's like a mathematical equation where it always works out to one solution. And there's no exceptions to these rules. So in light of conveying that to Job, he's essentially saying to Job, Job, you expect the whole world to, to, to flip and revolve around you? And keep in mind, Job is already in a discouraged state. Because the chapter before chapter 18, chapter 17, 15, he says, Where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the, the, the bars of, of Sheol, the place of, of death? Shall we descend together into the dust? So after hearing Bildad's speech, we come to chapter 19 today. How will Job process his suffering? How will Job respond to, to, to Bildad as, as well as this cumulative counseling sessions that he's had with his other friends up until this point? While last week we focused on miserable comforters and the things they say, today I want to draw our attention to some principles through Job's experience that we might consider for our own lives. Principles on processing pain and suffering. How might we consider unpacking and engaging our suffering in a way that's constructive for our hearts and draw us nearer to God? The title of today's message is The Dawn of Hope and Despair. Because that's what we see in chapter 19. This movement from despair to now the, the dawning, the rising of hope. Because what we see in chapter 19 is Job processing his suffering at a, at a very low point in his life. In fact, as we'll see, he's in utter despair. Yet near the end of chapter 19, he rises to see the dawn of hope found in God. And there's just one simple yet profound question I want to attempt to answer this morning. How do we hope in the midst of suffering? In the middle of the storm of perplexing suffering that you can't seem to make sense of, how do you move towards hope? And the purpose in trying to answer this specific question is, is simple. So that you may suffer wisely and suffer well. And so our key idea this morning that we're going to look at is intended to, to pull you in the right direction when it comes to suffering wisely and well. The key idea I want us to consider is this. Moving from despair to definitive hope 
begins with open honesty before God and trusting he will vindicate you. Or I'll repeat that. Moving from despair to definitive hope begins with open honesty before God and trusting that he will vindicate. Consider this, when God allows us to go through suffering, when God allows Satan to to consider his servant a Job or his servant Chris or fill in the blank with your name, the question that's usually on our mind isn't, is God real? But rather, is God really like this? You see, we tend to find ourselves tempted to believe and operate under the view that maybe God isn't good. Maybe God isn't kind. And so maybe you know of others or even yourself. You've perhaps entertained the idea, is God cruel? Is he really as kind and and caring as a father he claims to be? Because it's during our suffering, we can become disillusioned about God, just as Job experienced. And one of the ways that we can wrongly respond to our perplexing suffering in an unhealthy way is called denialism. Basically, what denialism is, is denying or or rejecting the existence, uh, the truth, or, or validity of something despite proof or strong evidence that something is real, something is valid. The illustration that I like to use to illustrate denialism when they experience suffering may sound very childish, but hey, I'm the junior high director, so cut me some slack. And this illustration comes to mind when I think about denialism because it, it, it comes from this very illustrative picture. Now, uh, again, this is not scientifically proven of why this happens. Um, but anyways, this picture that I had at such a young age has to do with ostriches. How many of you know about ostriches? Okay. Oh, they don't actually do this, but when I was young, I heard like a story of how ostriches, some, again, it's a myth, but ostriches, when they're chased by a, a perceived threat or predator, after running or perhaps not running at all, the ostrich would sometimes respond by sticking their head into the ground or sand, Okay. It's sort of an, an idiom that's used akin to the, the warning to, to, to not bury your head in the sand, okay? Now, I know according to a quick Google search, you know, you'll find that this expression, um, you know, it's, it, it's a misconceived myth about ostriches. They don't actually do that, you know, put their head in the ground because of, like, threat of predator. But it's still a vivid picture that remains on my mind today. Why? Because it is a, a vivid picture in response to When something harmful, when something painful is coming towards you or is already being experienced, you know, are you going to try to bury and suppress it? Are you you going to try to avoid or uh, avoid the reality? And this is the essence of denialism. You may be going through suffering and pain. Maybe something traumatic happened and our response can be one that denies the reality of hurt. Deny the reality that something happened to you that you did not want, yet God allowed into your life. And what does denialism say? Don't worry. Everything will be fine. It's all good. Well, here's one I hear a lot these days when I hear of someone expressing their discouragement over something negative happening to them. 
but not wanting to make a big deal out of it, okay, or talk further about it, I'll hear them say, it is what it is. I'm part of the generation that, at least I think I am, that loves memes, okay? Uh, we laugh and find humor in, in memes. And I've seen many memes that friends have texted me, uh, like the office memes, uh, which I won't go into. But there is one meme that, that seems to, to be such an appropriate fitting picture by how we sometimes respond to painful trials or afflictions in our lives. And it's out of our control. Can you guess what meme I'm, I'm thinking about or talking about? Kids, quiet, not a response, but that's okay. Well, if you're... Uh, if you're clueless about what meme I'm talking about, thinking about, it's the one with a dog, okay, help, helpful clue, sitting in a room on a chair by a table that's totally engulfed in flames and fire. As a dog continues sitting calmly and says with a smile, this is fine. And this is essentially what denialism is. And it prevents us from engaging our pain and suffering in a constructive manner. Because living in denial of pain and suffering leads us to pretend and act like everything's okay, so we'll be okay. But realize that this is not a biblically faithful response when it comes to suffering and pain. It doesn't actually help you or me move towards a greater trust in God or help, or process a wrong perspective or conclusions that might be shaping how we think and live. So what is then? Job begins by responding to his miserable comforters by acknowledging how the words have been unhelpful. He says in verse two, how long will you torment me and break me into pieces with words? These 10 times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I bear, my error remains with myself. So within these first few verses, we see Job essentially telling his friends, stop treating him like an enemy with this verbal assault. And this phrase 10 times doesn't mean Job is actually like hearing all the speeches, taking like a check mark of, but again, it's, it's counted all his fingers already with the amount of times that, and it's, it's speak about this repetitive pounding on him, assault on him that's relentless in their speech. They treat him like an enemy by constantly emphasizing and nagging his suffering is a proof of his sin. It's his fault. They're magnifying themselves by doing that, by making Job out to be the guilty in all of this as they take the moral and intellectual high ground. And their verbal assault is harsh towards one they would regard as a friend. But the words are also untrue when it comes to Job's suffering. Job knows he's not perfect, okay? In verse 4, he says, And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. This isn't Job admitting it's because of sin this is happening to him. This is Job saying, look, even if I have sinned, I haven't done anything that would make me deserve for this to happen to me, guys. I searched myself already. Job didn't suffer because he sinned. We know this as readers. Says it was Satan's direct attack on him and how God permitted the accuser to strike him. And Job has searched himself and does not recognize any hidden or unrepentant sin that would bring upon this innocent suffering that he's now experiencing. So that's the perplexing thing about Job and that what he's wrestling through. 
He knows God is just and he punishes the wicked. He knows you get what you deserve. He knows God blesses and rewards the righteous, but that's exactly the problem. The things that, that's happening to him weren't directly caused by anything he had done wrong, which is what he's trying to wrestle through, which is why he's trying to, he's trying to grasp ever so desperately in an attempt to make sense of his suffering. He doesn't understand why all this bad stuff, all of these painful experiences are happening to him specifically. Look with me at verse five to six. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. So Job is pointing his finger at God for making Job out to be a sinner and the reason why these things are happening. He's saying God is the reason for his, his suffering. Even if he can't figure out how or why, Job holds on God accountable for his situation. After all, God is sovereign, right? God is in control. So Job's friends believe God is punishing Job in verse 1 through 4 and how he perceives it. But Job thinks God is out to get him in verse 5 to 6. And Job's honesty here with God, I would argue, gives me and gives you permission to be honest. In verses 7 to 12, Job is using metaphors to describe his relationship to God. He's poetically expressing his emotions and feelings of disappointment. Behold, I cry out violence, okay? He has walled up my way so I can't pass. He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head and brought to a low place. He breaks me down on every side. He has kindled his wrath against me. His troops come on together and laid the siege ramp against me. Job knows the right Sunday school answers about who God is. He knows the attributes of God, even though Job did not have Wayne Grudem's systematic theology book as it was not written yet, okay? But in his head, Job knows the right things about God and what God's unchanging character is like. But when suffering enters the picture of his life, there's this dissonance between what he knows about God in relation to what's happening to him. And so in his head, Job, Job knows the right things about God and what, what's going on. But in his experience, he's struggling to work out who God seems to be. And his strong accusations against God describe this relational distance he feels between himself and God. As if he's being assaulted and treated like God's enemy rather than a friend. Like God is hostile towards him. And so the prevailing question that Job has to wrestle with is this. Is a good and loving God really like this? That he would allow me to go through this? Job feels mistreated by the God he, he thought loves him. And this leads to his disillusion. That's the very heart of the matter. These words of accusation against God reveal a certain view, a, a particular perspective he's still struggling with in his disappointment, his disillusionment with God. You see, Job's presumption that eats away at him is that his moral innocence, his blamelessness, his righteousness as a servant of God, it should have prevented him. It should have warded off the possibility 
of experiencing suffering. After all, shouldn't a good and loving God preclude people from suffering, especially for the people he, he says he loves, he claims to love? And while we don't get an answer to that question at this moment, we do get a response. And you know what I like about Job here? By trying to process his suffering and feelings of mistreatment by God, he does not live in denial about his affliction. He does not say, this is fine. In other words, he's being honest with how he feels when it comes to his suffering and the painful experiences that's entered his life, ones in which he had no control over. He's honest about his struggle to make sense of how would God would allow me these things to happen to my life, in my life. How He's honest about his dis- disappointment with God and the things that he's painfully experienced so negatively. Beloved, Job's honesty with God encourages us, me and you, to be honest with him. Honest to God about the things you have suffered here in this room. Honest to God about the things that have hurt you. Honest to God about what pains you. Honest to God with the burdens that still scar you. Honest to God about the trauma that still prevents you from moving forward in life. Notice that the process towards hope begins with open honesty before God and others when things are not right. When everything in life, whether it be your your health, your relationships, your circumstances, all seem to be going downhill and your life is burning to the ground in a heap of ashes. Beloved, if there's anything that Job teaches us positively, in contrast from his friends who are miserable comforters, on what to avoid, it's this. Job teaches us honest to, to be honest before God. To say no to miserable comfort, but say yes to raw transparency before God. You see, part of a health, healthy relationship with God, yes, even to those he would regard as righteous and blameless, such as Job, means not burying your hurts and sufferings in life. We suppress our suffering when we never bring up our real heart struggles before God in prayer or even others. We assume that questioning God about difficult things we face, like the psalmists do all the time with raw emotion, is somehow outside of the boundaries or proper category of what a healthy relationship with God looks like. And I believe this is Sometimes how we, we, we err. We live in error in our relationship with God. That to express or use words of dissatisfaction when suffering is somehow antithetical to a healthy relationship. So instead we isolate ourselves. We live in denial rather than engage in our conflicted feelings about God when we suffer. We wrongly adopt an attitude that is somehow shameful, that is somehow, oh, it's shameful to open up and share how you really feel to God. We wrongly adopt a heart posture that says, there's no margin for this way of relating to, to the God who watches over me and loves me. But realize Job doesn't see his relationship with God that way. He continues to be honest before God and others as one who lives with integrity before God. So that is our first point this morning 
of how we learn ourselves to hope in God. And it begins with being open and honest before God about our suffering. Our second point this morning is this, to be resolved to hope in your Redeemer. To be resolved to hope in your Redeemer. From verses 13 to 20, Job speaks literally about how he's been abandoned and rejected. Rather than speaking poetically like before, he speaks very literally here. Here's a man who's experienced isolation, loneliness as a human being, as he surveys his various spheres of relationships, whether it be fellow clansmen, servant, his wife, brothers, and even children, okay? In light of all he's been through, it shows the, the breadth, the scope, of how darkness and despair in life has left, left him isolated, abandoned, and even physically weak, okay, with his uh, disease, his con- physical condition. And he's treated like a social outcast. I mean, think about it. To be rejected by those closest to you at one point in life is one of the cruelest forms of isolation one can experience. And he speaks quite literally of how his family, friends turned against him uh, his suffering, he feels alone, unloved, forgotten. There was no one else to stand for him. No other human being to vindicate him or be a witness or be willing to, to vouch for his integrity, to stand uh, for Job's innocence. No one has come to his aid. No one has come to advocate him at this point. A sufferer speaks what he truly feels. Why can't he have mercy? Why can't he get answers? And so he's, he's feeling this, this tension of someone who has faith in God on the one hand, yet complains against God. Faith in God complains to God. Remember, unbelief curses God and says, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. That's what it means to curse God, which his wife encouraged. Be done with. And although Job expresses disappointment in God, at no point does he, does it say, the text says, he curses God and abandons his faith. So keep that in mind in your own life as you see Job straddle this tension of how to relate to God that makes some of us uncomfortable or question, is, is this even okay? You see, belief is still allowed to cry out to God. Belief is still permitted to complain to God. Belief can still doubt God. Belief can still ask God questions. And that's what we see Job doing as a believer, that God has allowed Satan to afflict. So when Job's life is in the dark pit, we see this glimmer of hope as he turns his eye upward now and sees a ray of hope. Look with me at verses 23 to 24, because this is the turning point that we must see to how he gets the hope. Job's pain becomes the entranceway and occasion for hope. And it's only the full admission of his pain where he will get to experience and move towards hope. Verse 23 reads, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. In verse 24, Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. So he turns towards hope through a testimony that he will be vindicated. His name is going to be cleared from any wrong or accusations. He desires for it to be recorded down and let it be known to all, even that if he dies, I want this recorded. I want this 
testimony to be true and said that I was blameless before God, righteous in God's eyes, that it would be written on stone, that it would endure for years after years after decades after century on something like an epitaph, a rock, a stone, it recorded. So even if I die, it says right there, it will not perish. His integrity was upheld and preserved that someday he would be proven true. You see, what Job has experienced is not looking inward at his circumstances in his suffering. He's beginning to express the bedrock by which his foundation lies. The bedrock of his faith. Why? Because sometimes suffering will hit you like a freight train. And when it does, when your feelings are heavy, uh, when your emotions are a hot mess, when your friends have turned against you, when you're lonely, when you're feeling isolated, and, you, and no one knows the depth of your despair or torment that you're experiencing, when everything seems to hurt and your life seems to be undone from beneath you, what is it that you're going to cling to? What is that? What is that? What do you know to be true? Where will you turn to? Because if you cling to that one truth which Job clings to, you can have every bit of confident hope just like him. Let's look at what Job clings to. What does Job know? First, Job knows his Redeemer lives. What is a Redeemer? The word for Redeemer is Goel. And the same word used throughout the Old Testament that means kinsman Redeemer. It's a a title reserved for God and first used in the book of Exodus when Israel's freedom was bought back from Egyptian bondage, slavery. Okay, He is the one who redeemed Israel, who delivered them from captivity. Later in the Bible, we'll see another example of a redeemer in a person. Someone that fulfills an obligation to restore what's been lost to, or, or messed up in another person's life, especially as it pertains to a fellow family member or clansman. One of the most famous stories in the Bible of a Redeemer is one which many of you know this morning. It's found in the book of Ruth. You know that biblical story that uh, a lot of misguided, uh, young, single Christian young men leave away thinking they wish they were Boaz and a godly woman should just approach them and fall before their feet? Yeah, that story. And they giggle and laughter in their teenage adolescence and it's an example of wrong application from the wrong text of Scripture, okay? That is not the point of Ruth. Okay? The story of Ruth is so much richer than that when it comes to understanding a kinsman redeemer. Because Ruth is a widow who remains with her late husband's mother, Naomi. She's impoverished and disinherited, yet she desires that Naomi's God would be her God. And so Boaz, being a, a kinsman or a relative, steps into the picture to make things right by marrying her in order to, to love her and care for her, to enrich and make her life better from what it was before. And it's a story where Boaz is made out to be the hero of this story. He's called the Kinsman Redeemer, a family that helps, member that helps and rescues to restore what's been lost, to, to vindicate. And so when Job confidently states that he has a Redeemer, he has a vindicator. He knows of a redeemer who will restore him, who will rescue him when he can't depend on any, anyone else since he's been abandoned at this point. He knows he can trust in this kinsman, someone within the family, 
Someone who will champion his cause and restore what was lost. So that's the first thing Job knows that leads him towards hope. Second, he knows that his Redeemer will stand upon the earth. That's in the second half of verse 25. Okay, The fact that this Redeemer is a person, is alive and well, and will stand upon the earth. So it's the idea of this Redeemer, okay, will survey when all is said and done, will stand on, on top where it says, you have been vindicated, okay? I will make things right. I will stand for your name. So that's the second thing. And the third thing. Verse 26, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall, I shall see God. Job has hope that he will see his Redeemer in person. In particular, he recognizes, he connects the dot that God is his Redeemer. His Redeemer is none other than God. And he will see God in the flesh. The God who is sovereign and in control of the suffering brought into his life is also the God who will make it right, who will settle all the wrongs and vindicate Job against the loss he's experienced. I know for some of you, it might be a hard pill to swallow. Is that a, a worthy conclusion? Right? Does that truly answer all your questions when it comes to the problem of suffering and the fact that God is sovereign and in control? And this book doesn't answer all the questions. It's left many theologians uh, perplexed with the interpretive challenges of what is the point of Job? We know it talks about suffering, but what are we to make of suffering? But this is what it does offer. It tells us that even though, as Job acknowledges, God has allowed suffering, though he is not the direct causation of that suffering, because it was Satan, remember. God is also the Redeemer, the one who will deliver Job. And so we see Job now moving towards hope because he's clinging on to the fact that he has a Redeemer and his Redeemer is God. He clings on to the truth that uh, God will vindicate him, will not let him go, and that he will be vindicated in the end. Now, we have an advantage because we know the ending to the book of Job in the last chapter, where God really does vindicate him and prove that God is his redeemer, right? And he actually does get a response from God and sees God. But here's the thing. For us, 4,000 years later, thousands of years later, from when Job encountered God, it is suffering. We too have a redeemer. God is our redeemer. And that is the son of God, his son, Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus knew the scriptures. He didn't deny the Old Testament. And if you look closely at Job 19, you'll see that there are a lot of 
There's a lot of language that's, that, that Jesus borrows to describe his own agony and suffering, the same as Job does in this, in this chapter. Right? The idea of a crown. Jesus was a crown. He wore a crown of, of thorns. The fact that Job experienced abandonment and isolation and how Jesus was abandoned and isolated by his disciples. He was rejected, scorned. And even as Job experienced innocent suffering, Jesus was the epitome of innocent suffering. When he died on that cross for our sake, and it felt like and he experienced what it meant to truly be forsaken by God. And what I want to leave you away with is this. When suffering comes, when difficulty comes, what is it that you will cling to? And what we learn from Job, he moves from raw honesty before God about how life sucks. But he directs and focuses his attention upward and clings tightly, consistently in this battle for faith, this journey of faith to the very end of what he knows to be true about God. And certainty, he will be vindicated. He can bank on it. He can trust in that. And I want to encourage every one of you, no matter, I, I don't know exactly what you are going through, the type of pain you've endured, the suffering, that you would be like Job and cling to what you know to be true about a good and loving Redeemer in Jesus Christ who bore our sins upon himself, who suffered innocently for our sake, who came to, to heal the wounded, the afflicted, the diseased, and cared for them gently. The bruised we read, he will not break. Yet for those who feel like they have no need of him, how they, the, the self-righteous, the, the Pharisees, who have no need of this gentle and loving son of God, they will receive wrath and punishment, the sword. So let that be a bedrock of hope for you this morning and moving forward as we gaze upon our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me?